If you would, grab a Bible and turn it to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. For those of you who are interested in such things, I am reading out of the ESV translation. Uh, It is what I've been using for this particular series of sermons. So if you have the option, reading off of uh, a a tablet or off of a, a phone and want to follow along what I'm using, it's the ESV. Before I get started, I um, just want to say something that um, uh, is probably self-evident, but just a reminder. We tend to have reminders here and there about those in the midst of the times that we're living in uh, who are suffering. Uh, we have at least one member who has a, a very close family member who may be um, at the doorsteps of death due to COVID. We also have um, those who have... Uh, uh, sufferings of other kinds, um, those who have parents who are not doing well. I uh, just w- want to remind you, as I have done several times, is this time, if you have not brushed off your prayer life in a while, this is the time to do it. Um, and, 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 I'm, and I'm not saying that other times are not the time to do it. I'm saying This is an opportunity. If you have not got that yet, this is an opportunity to become a man, a woman, a child, a prayer. And um, there is no lack of things to pray for. There's no lack of things to pray for. And so just encourage you in that way. Um, In fact, to that end, next week's service, there'll be an element of... um, of us talking about prayer and a um, very specific way in which we pray, uh, not just during these times, but in response to the God of history that we're reading about in Daniel chapters 7 through uh, 12 uh, as we conclude this series. Uh, we do continue this series of sermons from the Bible writing of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't know what the Old Testament is, you're not familiar with the Bible. Um, it's the earlier portion of our Bible text. Um, And our series title has been uh, called Thriving uh, When Adversity is the Norm. Thriving When Adversity is the Norm. And today, we're starting on the second portion of Daniel, as I alluded to, the sections known uh, by Daniel's visions and dreams as opposed uh, to the king's court narratives that we previously covered in chapters 1 through 6. Uh, Among the things to remember um, as we go through this is that, like the Bible writing of Revelation, this vision and dream portions of Daniel are not meant to unravel as some sort of mystery that you and I need to uncover. Uh, That's not how we were ever meant to read this. We are not reading a puzzle book. We are reading a picture book, a picture book. Pictures meant to stir our imaginations and to deeply imprint uh, the messages we have here, to deeply imprint them on my soul and your soul. And that's part of why the imagery is there, so that we can't forget it. We shouldn't forget it, uh, and that it puts something um, that does not leave us. Now, one thing that does not change uh, from previous chapters of Daniel, uh, this is still wisdom writing. Uh, wisdom literature in the Bible. We are still meant to feel stirred to action in how we live, how we think, how we speak in light of the gospel and its truth. It just comes from a different form and style of writing. 
And we do have a lot to read, and we will move quickly through portions of the text. I might summarize some paragraphs here and there if it seems helpful, or I might not. Uh, regardless, we have a lot to read. We're going through 7 and 8 today, so let's get rolling. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Real quickly, it notes the time period in which uh, this particular vision in chapter 7 takes place. It's during the reign of Belshazzar. And if you remember or were with us in previous, um, uh, previous uh, sermons on Daniel, you know that Belshazzar uh, was actually not the ruler of all of Babylonia, but he was a co-regent with his father, who was actually the final rule, ruler of the Babylonian empire as far as history is concerned. And so during this time, what was interesting was that Daniel was brought to Belshazzar after serving for years uh, for Nebuchadnezzar and then some subsequent rulers in between. It's almost as if Daniel and what he did for Nebuchadnezzar and in the intervening years was forgotten because he was brought to Belshazzar uh, almost as an afterthought as a result of uh, the, the queen mother's pleading that, she, that he go ahead and call him uh, to interpret uh, things for him, the writing on the wall. And so, with that said, um, it's often been wondered, well, what was Daniel doing in the intervening period? Well, we don't know everything, but we know this. He was having visions, okay? This tells us that. This is part of what was going on that time period where he apparently wasn't doing a whole lot for the empire prior to being called before Belshazzar and into his service. So, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel was... Uh, saw a dream, uh, visions his head, lay in his bed, and then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. The result is we have this in front of us today. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Uh, this is imagery language here, folks, to, to remind us uh, that, that this is a world of chaos. The great sea was considered the ultimate, the penultimate image of what chaos represented in our world. And so if you wanted to talk about how chaos uh, seems to abound and grow and have its way in our world, uh, you would talk about it in imagery terms as a great sea. And so we see that it's being stirred and out of it is coming something. I saw that Things were being stirred up in the sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked at its wings, they were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Um, we think this is probably referring to Babylon. It probably refers to Babylon's most famous or infamous ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, and the fact that he basically lived like one who had feathers, uh, but then was made to think and act like a man again, eventually again. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but it sure sounds awfully suspicious. And quite frankly, we're not going to be told what it is. Uh, and so maybe we shouldn't speculate too much. Um, so anyway, then it goes on. It says, behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on the, on the one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and, and dominion was given to it. 
Uh, so again, we, we see two more beasts arise. We are not sure that either of these um, are the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and then subsequently the Romans. But again, probably somewhere in that range because most of these prophecies were given towards a fairly near history interpretation. Okay, so after this, in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So, it goes on, and he says, I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And so he's just been told this great image of the ancient day of days. And then he kind of turns back to what was happening before. He's kind of stuck on that a little bit. I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. That's just the Bible's way of saying till the fulfillment of time. So I won't say too much about what we've just read uh, in addition to what I've already said, except as a spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, what we get from the angel's interpretation later of this text, these first few verses describe the nature of history as one of the cyclical changing of the guard of earthly kingdoms, using near history, uh, probably, like I said, uh, Babylon, uh, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, using near history as a picture of this phenomenon or an example of a much larger phenomenon that ha happens throughout history. And we probably are, we're probably safe to say that uh, because uh, we see in verse uh, 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 12, even though it was killed uh, and the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, their lives were prolonged. That's, that's really, for the fulfillment of time, the lives of those like them were going to be fulfilled over and over. In other words, governments will rise and fall, they'll be around. Um, now, then in verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, two things that the ancient reader would have picked up on was this. He was coming on the clouds of heaven. That can only mean one thing, and that this is God. <laughs> this is God. God is the cloud rider. No one else is a cloud rider except for God. But then they would have been kind of taken aback by the next statement, calling him a son of man. 
which is an obvious reference to a humanity that he carries. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This, of course, is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is God the Son, the Savior of the world, the King of kings. He's describing him in his, all his glory. And here is where the cascading imagery of the vision actually begins to slow down or even stop. And where an interaction with one of those serving the Son of Man begins to take center stage. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. He said, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. And this is, you can't make this stuff up. This is so human. I mean, Daniel is us. (laughs) He's like, hey, that fourth beast, that really caught me off guard. Tell me a little bit more about that. Tell me a little bit more. I wanted to know more about it, which was different from all the rest. It was exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. This could be the later, I told you I wouldn't do too much, um, um, thinking on this for you, but um, this, this could be the Suclids of the, of the Greek Empire, but um, this really reads a lot like it's the Romans, probably, because they were infamous for basically stamping out everything in the empire. They were terrible producers. They were incredible consumers. Uh, they basically took, took, took from conquered peoples, but when there were no more t- conquered peoples to take from, they basically began to crumble as an empire if you look at things historically. Um, because they never learned how to be a producing empire. Uh, they were only an acquisition and consumption empire. Anyway, but th- that, p- that, that phrase actually paints them to a T as far as what they did. Uh, there was nothing left to consume, nothing left under the feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, I want to know about that. And the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, that seemed greater than its companions, And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And thus, this angel, he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of the kingdom, ten horns, or ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be diff- different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time and time and half, half a time. Again, this is until time is finished its work. But the courts shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. 
to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So interesting. Um, before it was kings, Daniel would come before Nebuchadnezzar. He would come before Belshazzar and Darius. They would be the one confused, alarmed, color leaving their bodies. Here, Daniel is the one. Uh, who, who cannot seem to make heads or tails, who seems very anxious over what he is seeing. So what has been said, though, thus far? What has this attendant of the Most High said to Daniel regarding his vision? Well, beyond the larger message for Daniel and us, which we will actually get to in just a moment, we'll address after reading chapter 8, what's described in these first verses, in this chapter 7, is the ebb and the flow of history, specifically the history of how the world oftentimes feels, acts, chaotic, how it's mixed in with a little bit of order, how this ebb and flow of history and how, how this chaos of the world and the players that try to bring it under order, how they interact, and what's clear about this is despite the the actors that try to put the world into some sort of order they themselves are products of the chaos <laughs> they come out of the sea and so they are not fit in the way that another will be to put things to rights that's part of what's being communicated here through this imagery. And so this is a picture of history. Not only, not, not the, and by the way, this is not the only picture painted in the Bible regarding history, but a picture here in this text that we see at several points in other biblical texts. In these sections of Daniel, history is described as a narrative of succeeding kings and succeeding kingdoms, societies and cultures cyclically vying for the top of the heap, the right to put the world to rights, to put it back to order, ordered out of its perceived chaos. One suitor, one beast, one monster replaces the other, seemingly without end, some longer lasting and greater than others. And all of these with varying degrees of hostility towards and effect upon God's people. I mean, it was clear there that, that, that one at least had a far larger impact on God's people than the others. And so that happens. It didn't just happen. This happens. That's part of the message here. This is reality. This is how history works. This is how it ebbs and how it flows. This is a history lesson without getting into the details and dates of history. <laughs> there will be some times that it will have an effect on God's people even to the point of seeming to overcome and prevail over God's people. All hope is lost, even though it's not. But it will seem that way. Yet ultimately, this vision of history that Daniel sees, it's all driving towards a king and a kingdom and a redeemed society and world that is led by this Son of Man, by Jesus. 
And perhaps most incredibly beyond that, little us. Many of us that feel like pawns and insignificant actors in the scope of, of history today, even pawns in even the small slice of history that we happen to be living in, little or less, should we be one of Jesus' people, we will be receivers and possessors of this ultimate kingdom to come. That is a part of the overt promise in these texts that you can bank on. Not only is there a son of man who will put things to right, but he is going to deliver for you to receive and possess a kingdom that was earned and bought by him, deserving of him, but out of grace he gives to those that are his. There's more. And I am leaving out some of the more important aspects of this, but I want to keep moving through chapter 8 since it, it was meant to further Daniel and our understanding of chapter 7. So let's keep reading. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, after the other vision. That's a long way of saying that, right? And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in the Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Uli Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. This is a little bit comical. I mean, it's just a ram. I mean, mean, a ram may be scary if you meet one, I mean, but, but it's a ram. It's not a monster coming out of the sea. But yet it could do what it wanted. It ran and acted like it was the alpha. And as I was considering, and he's thinking about this, this is really odd. I mean, you put yourself in Daniel's shoes. You're having this vision. This is odd. This is strange. This is a bizarre. I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. Now, if a ram wasn't that menacing, a goat certainly isn't. I guess it depends on the goat. Some of them are mean. It came from the west, from the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. Okay, so that's interesting. So it's a floating goat. Um, Which probably is the Bible's way of saying it was being swift. Um, like it was unimpeded and swift, which makes sense when you hear the interpretation of what the goat represents. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had been standing in the bank of the canal, and, and and he ran at the ram in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from the goat's power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. In other words, at the height of his strength, the great horn was broken. Again, this will make sense in a moment. And instead of it, 
there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. That's, that's towards uh, Jerusalem. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the, and the, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgressions that make desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Uh, by the way, a lot of people have tried to do the math on this and, and line it up with some history. What this is probably getting at, it's trying to communicate an incredible specificity without being locked down on the nature of the specificity, <laughs> if you get my drift. So, um, again, we'll be back to that in a moment. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the times of the end. Now what it means by that, guys, does not necessarily mean the end of history. Uh, there are a variety of types of ends in the Scripture. And what this likely is referring to is the end of what, how they understood the role and place of Israel's history in this particular moment. Um, that is the end to which they would have been most concerned, by the way, anyway. And so when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you that what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it, it refers to the appointed time of the end. Same meaning as before. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. <laughs> Could not be more specific, right? He's like, whereas before, it seemed a little bit, uh, okay, we could say this was the Romans or something. Now he has zeroed in on at least two groups, and he has told us what one of them is, the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians were an existing empire at this point in history that would eventually, not too long from now, crush and take over and assimilate Babylon into its empire. Okay? So that's not too impressive to this point in terms of a vision. Someone could possibly see and prognosticate on the horizon that this could happen due to the rising power of the Persians and the Medes, right? So, the Median Persia. And the, other, or the goat is the king of Greece. This is where you start to go, huh, because this is many more years in advance of this. And so this is where we're getting to some heavy prophecy. It's like going, okay, so now he's talking about Alexander the Great 
again, with great swiftness, he came and conquered. And he also, at the peak, the penultimate of his career, he dies. He's a young man in his 30s, at the height of his power. And so if it didn't make sense before, it it makes complete sense because he's being overt about it, but yet this is still hundreds of years in advance. King of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from that nation, but not with his power. They They won't all have the same kind of level of power that Alexander did, and they didn't. And at the latter end of their kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their limit, a king, a bold face, who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. That's the Bible's way of saying that it's not just because he was great, it's because God allowed him to be great. That's what it's saying. This is probably talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seuclids, which were a part of the, the Greek Empire. And so, he shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And he does this. Whereas the Greeks were actually pleasant on on scale with the uh, Jewish people, he was not. He was fierce, ferocious against them, persecuted them, destroyed the temple, desecrated it absolutely made it folly of it. And therein lies all that we've read before. He burned copies of the Torah, all the sacred writings. Again, he threw truth to the ground, it tells us. He indeed did that. All these things were historically accurate. He shall succeed in what he does, destroying mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit proper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And this happened. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And in so doing, he shall be broken. But not by human hand. And this did happen. And he did meet an untimely end. Depending on the narrative you subscribe to it could have been by way of disease Uh, some narratives have told us that his bowels were seized in a way that typified the way he would disembowel people he basically felt that kind of pain (laughs) and then eventually he either died by that or was killed in a battle or maybe he threw himself off into a sea we're not a hundred percent there's a few ways, but he met an untimely end, is the bottom line, whether we know the exact details or not. And it was the Lord who made it happen. But it was also the Lord that allowed him to do what he did to the Jewish people. That is true. Both things are true. And both things are spoken of in this text. The vision of the evenings, verse 26, the vision of the evenings in the mornings, That has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, and then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision. I did not understand it. That 
that's a fascinating statement because he just got through explaining a bunch of it, right? But he says, I did not understand it. We'll get to that in a moment. But what I do want to do with the rest of our time is I just want us to understand that above all else in these texts, what we are being entreated to do, what Daniel's being entreated to do, is have a gospel-tinted perspective on history and all that is around us. Man, can I tell you something? The times we're living in, and really all the times we've ever lived in, but especially the times we're living in now, never has there been such a need for us to live within the scope of a gospel lens through which we see all things. See things through what the gospel accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. How we view the world in light of that earth-shattering good news and what it means for us and what it could mean for those who are far from God. This we know from this text. God is the author of history. Man, chapter 7 was painting a broad picture of that, saying here's how history goes. Not only is this how it's going to go in kind of the next season of history, this is how history goes in all seasons of history. This is the cycle. God is the author of history, not men of influence, not men of power, not nations, not movements, not even God's people themselves. We are not the authors of history. We're not writing this story. We're not steering this story. Daniel 7 makes it clear. God is the author of history, and he is directing it towards his purposes and for his glory. And to emphasize that point, look at how chapters 7 and 8 interact with one another. It's fascinating. I don't know if you thought about it as we were reading through it and just kind of thinking about what's being done in each chapter, but just looking at the contrast is just, is just fascinating. In chapter 7, we're introduced to monsters. We're seeing monsters. And, and, and the truth is, he, he paints them that way because that's oftentimes the way we see it. We see powers and, 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 and these incredible dark forces that seem to have their way in our world, and we see them as great and terrifying. They're monsters in the dark. If I could be so bold, I submit to you, chapter 8 is a corrective on our views that God readily admits we have in chapter 7. You see, for God, he wants you to know that those monsters are just rams and goats. They're just rams and goats. It's because he goes and whittles down onto the story of, of at least two of the actors, the Medes and Persians and the Greeks. What you think are monsters terrifying beyond imagine that spin you and cause you to lay awake at night? They are rams and goats. They are domesticated animals running around, think they are running and writing the story. That's what they really are. 
It's almost like we're being bid to see things through the lens of God. <laughs> That's a gospel perspective. Spirit-led perspective. They're not as terrifying as you think. They're just rams and goats thinking they're tough and writing a story from the perspective of God. They're not. Then we see chaos that they bring in chapter 7. It's spoken of in very broad terms. In fact, Daniel's like, I, I want to know what some of this meant. And, and, and the angel just doesn't tell him a lot. <laughs> He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, that's not even the most important thing about what you just saw. The, the beasts weren't the most important thing about what you saw. What you just saw was the Ancient of Days on his throne. What you saw was the Son of Man as a cloud rider. That's what you saw. That's what you were meant to take away from that. That whatever you think of these monsters, there is an Ancient of Days on his throne, pure and powerful. And his Son, Jesus, ready to ride on a cloud come in the form of flesh. Chaos is made into details and purposes to him in chapter 7. Whereas it's much broad and, and scary and, and imposing and feels oppressive in chapter 7. In chapter 8, those details feel firmly under the thumb of God. In chapter 7, he's not interested in understanding the details, but for us to be captivated by the greater picture of an enthroned ancient of days and the Son of Man, this cloud rider who reigns. Chapter 8, he gives us details. The Greeks, the P Medes, the Persians, 2300, very specific number. He's telling us what you view and see in very general, opaque terms foggy even, he sees very specifically and has purpose for. He's numbered their days. He knows it all. He's not unaware. And by the way, the fact that he addresses our fleshly perspective means he understands and does not minimize all that goes along with our fleshly perspective. He's not making fun of you for seeing monsters. He's telling you, yeah, when we look with flesh eyes, we're going to see monsters. They are terrifying if the Ancient of Days were not on his throne. And so he's telling us both. Not mocking us, but he's definitely saying, you, you do see this. And he knows why we see it as terrifying. And he's not unsympathetic to us. Otherwise, he would not have featured in chapter 7 the throne scene. He gives that to us to tell us he sympathizes with us and wants us to know he is overcoming the world. Whatever it seems to be throwing your way and our, my way. So however, the fact that he addresses his perspective of things means he wants us to give up our fleshly way of seeing life and history and let the spirit give us eyes to see his view of history and the world. 
what you and I often seem to see as merely secular or common is actually much more. This is my last point on this is he wants us in chapter 8 to see that what we perceive in chapter 7 is merely actors on a stage playing roles and being terrifying. He says, actually, what they're doing is more than what you're seeing. And when he references Antiochus Epiphanes, he actually drills down on the specificity of him and his reign and how he actually brought things to blow against the people of God, and in doing that, was trying to basically set himself up and against the prince of princes. In other words, he wasn't just fighting against the people of God, he was fighting against God. His very name actually says that. His name implies that he is basically the God on the ascension. And then... All the mentions of stars being cast. It's giving, us, it's giving us an image that there is not only monsters abounding, but whatever we might see and be terrified of, there's actually something else going on behind that in the spiritual world. The Shadowlands, as C.S. Lewis called it. The spiritual dimension of life is incredibly important at work every step of the way. He wants you to understand that. All the machinations of this world and, and those who think they're writing this story behind all of those things is a spiritual war. And we're going to be into that a lot more in the coming chapters. And we'll see how you respond to this. How do we respond to this perspective, this spirit perspective that the Lord would want us to have? Well, as we close today, I just want to end on this. Um, subsequent weeks will give us some other things to respond, ways to respond, but, but I want to I start with the immediate response of Daniel. I, Daniel, was overcome, lay sick for days, then I rose, went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This passage, coupled with chapter 7, where we're told that we are to receive and possess the kingdom, which, by the way, the coming of Jesus in flesh, his perfect life, his death on my behalf, his atoning death, his substitutionary death on my behalf, and the subsequent resurrection showing his defeat of death and sin and all that it entails, all of those things brought about the kingdom of heaven in a very real way. Not a full, complete way. That is to come at the second advent. But in a way that is far more real than we oftentimes give it credit his kingdom has come. And that's why we pray that. Your kingdom come. Continue to come. Your will be done. Continue to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we respond to this by receiving and possessing the kingdom of God. 
Too often I try to attain and possess a kingdom of this world. He's saying, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Did you see the throne scene? You want to possess and receive what he's giving you. Because the kingdoms of this world, (laughs) that's child's play. You want the real thing. So here it is. I'm just going to leave you with three things as far as what it might look like to receive and possess the kingdom from what Daniel does in verse 27. He didn't understand it. At least he didn't understand it all. He was told a lot. And so part of living within the the now but not yet kingdom is this. Respond in faith that while God sees it all, I don't need to. That's a real response, folks. Because oftentimes my response is, I I need to see it all. A response of faith is that God sees it, I don't need to see it all. That's a response of gospel faith. I don't need to understand it all. With that said, do I live as if there is, (laughs) do I live as if there is much I don't understand? Man, we're all know-it-alls anymore. You can Google it, you can know it. Do we? Really? Man, this is, this is something I need to hear right now. Do I live as if there is much I don't understand, much I misunderstand, and much that I need to understand? Second thing. We see him, Daniel, responding in faith that while God will put things back to rights, he will put chaos back to order. I can at least order what God has given me to steward and be found busy at work doing just that should he return today. Daniel gets up after being sick for some days and he went about the king's business. (laughs) And we know how he goes about the king's business because the the earlier portions of Daniel tell us this. He did it in a God-glorifying, honoring way. He did it for despots and horrible men but he did it for horrible men to the glory of God. He could work for them and still exercise stewardship to the true king. I gotta wonder, he rose and went about the king's business. I'm not completely convinced that means Belshazzar. I think it means his king. His king. He went about the king's business. Am I busy at the king's work? Or am I fiddling with things that just don't matter? Finally, respond in faith that while God will judge fully at the fullness of time, he is already bringing judgment to bear on this world. He always has been. He always has been. Judgment is always happening. Justice is always being addressed through the actors and machinations of history, even with a final judgment yet to come. And not all judgment, not all justice is going to be addressed in this world. We know that. The Bible tells us so. But only God is perfect, pure, powerful to judge rightly and fully and finally. And he will. And he's on the case. He's been on the case since circa 1 billion B.C. Uh, or whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying anything about old earth nerdware up there. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying 
since creation. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of him talking about this. He is always and continues to judge. Did you know that you're no longer, if you're in Christ, being judged? Do you know that? You are no longer being judged. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the cross and by victory of the resurrection, you are not condemned. You're not under judgment. This world, even with judgment happening, in society, culture, nations, you are always working and walking in a no-judgment zone. You should be the lightest people in terms of how it affects us personally. But you know what? We should be some of the headiest persons when it comes to how we know it affects those far from God. Because those far from God are not exempt from judgment. And therein lies probably Daniel's sickness and being appalled because judgment, although maybe won't affect him, affects so many of those who he loves and lives with on a day-to-day basis whether they be Persians, Medes, Babylonians, or his own ethnic people, the Jews. We should be of the lightest people when it comes to judgment in relationship to ourselves and want some of the heaviest people when it comes to other people. And those two things should simultaneously interact with one another and drive us to tell the gospel. And to that end, we respond in receiving this kingdom and possessing it. So let's go do it. Let's pray.